Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Hey, Game Changers, we've got a real treat for you today. Michelle Carroll has been a friend to us and a colleague and a leader of a school with whom we've been working with for some time now. She's a principal at St. Catherine's in Turak in sunny Melbourne. She's worked at schools in Brisbane, in Ipswich, in Singapore and here in Victoria. She's a sterling example of how you take relationships and a sense of responsibility and you use them not only to work your way through crisis, but to take a big step forward and up as a school and as a leader. I'm so excited that we get to chat with Michelle today. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 11 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We're proud to be partnered with the School for Tomorrow and Alex Bell at Portland Education in delivering a dynamic coaching-based leadership program called Lead Now. Lead Now provides the opportunity for emerging and established middle leaders to further build towards their full potential contributing to the ongoing high performance of the school community they serve. Head to a schoolfortomorrow.com slash coaching. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. And before we get to our conversation with uh, Michelle Carroll, uh, I'm hearing a rumour, Phil. I'm hearing a rumour that you're starting a new career as a food blogger on Instagram. <laughs> well, look, you know, somebody has to do it, Adriano. Somebody has to redress the balance about all this kale and quinoa and Michelle is, in fact, the person who's been encouraging me with all of my food blogging. And every time she sees pictures of my meat potatoes diet, she sends me little messages saying, eat your greens, eat your greens, eat yeah. your greens. So, yeah. yes, yes, food blog. And how's it working for you, Phil? Have you gotten any Have you got any kind of influencer sponsorship yet from the Meets from, R Us? <laughs> <laughs> the, guys from, the, guy, the guys from Party White in Fitzroy, you know, they pour me a free coffee every now and then. That's good. That's lovely. That's lovely. I mean, it's important to have hobbies, isn't it, Phil? Indeed, it is. It is. Indeed. Anyway, Are enough of done? this nonsense. I am. I am. Enough of this nonsense. Let's get to our very first guest here, uh, Michelle Carroll on Series 11. I can't believe we're at Series 11. So exciting. Michelle, I'm going to ask you the very first question that we ask all of our guests, and that is tell us a little bit about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. Uh, thanks, Phil, and thanks, Adriano. It's a privilege to be talking to you today. I was Curious, Phil, how you were going to introduce me, but uh, thank you very much. Um, great honour to be here today. Look, I, uh, I've been in education for over 30 years and uh, I've been in my current role. This is my ninth year, so um, it's been quite a journey. I'm from a family of educators, so I think teaching's in my blood. My dad was a teacher um, sort of during the Bob Hawke era <laughs> in Victoria, and uh, I have a brother who is also a teacher in Broome, so he works very closely with um, Indigenous footy players with the Broome High School mm -hmm. and Clontarf Academy. 
And I've got a sister who is also an art teacher in Bali and lives this very idyllic sort of lifestyle. I feel quite manic compared to sort of the work that she does. So very much a family of teachers. And, and I think that that was always going to be, uh, you know, a, a career path that I, I selected pretty much when I was like 16 years of age. I knew that that was mm. something that I would really enjoy doing. And so I sort of set out on that journey, um, you know, very early and, and have never stepped off. So I feel quite fortunate, um, you know, that uh, every conversation we have at home always has a bit of an education base or a, a conversation about government funding that can be quite interesting when you have uh, <laughs> a parent and a, and a brother uh, in, in a very different uh um, sector to what I work in as well. So mm-hmm. um, I uh, moved from Victoria to Queensland um, at the time when there was a number of um, uh, amalgamations of schools and teaching when I graduated was actually quite a difficult job to step into, not so much today in 2022. And uh, I've been fortunate to work in the uh, girls' school sector for all of my career. And uh, I just feel I'm well-placed there. It's uh, where I feel the most fulfilled. It's where I feel I can contribute the most and and it's where my passion and energy lies. So, you know, I've worked in uh, a number of independent schools in Brisbane and uh, I returned to Victoria for this role of principal has been rewarding. When you reflect upon the journey to date and you've had numerous experiences, as Phil explained at the top of the show in Queensland, Singapore and Victoria, what is it that you have learned about your capacity to lead? I think, uh, I think particularly over the last two years, I've learned that uh, I can do more than what I ever perhaps had originally believed that I could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been fortunate to work with some really strong women uh, in my career who had an approach of what um, I call, you know, send the elevator back down. So, you know, these were women that were looking out for other women to mm-hmm. step forward. And, you know, with their encouragement, um, you know, you'd sort of keep making a step forward in your career. So, you know, moving through those uh, middle management roles and then into more senior leadership roles. And uh, I think sometimes uh, you can surprise yourself with uh, what you can achieve when you actually uh, make the first step and then work it out as you go, you know. And so I think over the last two years, if I'd ever predicted what I had to lead a community through, I never would have imagined that I could have done what I've done the last two years. And I'm sure there are a number of principles as well. But, you know, in Victoria, we worked collaboratively as principals and, uh, you know, my leadership was stronger than perhaps what I ever thought I could have achieved. Michelle, I'm interested. Do you think there's a difference as a woman who's a leader in schools to the type of leadership that's offered by men? Phil, that's a hard question. No, I, I don't think there is. I think, you know, I think your leadership style is very individual, whether you're male or female. And and I haven't really worked very closely with many male leaders in schools. You know, I've worked predominantly in girls' schools. So my point of comparison is perhaps um, a little warped, but some of my strong mentors have been men and uh, they often can... I think my experience is that they can cut through to a decision, whereas I can deliberate and think and talk about something before I cut through to the decision. One of my great mentors is um, is a renowned principal, Alan Shaw, and uh, even during lockdown we had a number of conversations within our five-kilometre radius and he can have some really clarity of thinking, but I think women can have that as well. So I don't think there are many differences. I think the differences are perhaps a bit more individual with your own style and that. Michelle, over the last few years, it's um, as an outsider looking in, I've seen this uh, 
this continual emergence of St. Catherine's as being a, a school uh, of real destination for young women. I mean, it always has been, right? I shouldn't downplay that. It's, it's been an exceptional uh, institute here in, in Victoria uh, that has provided uh, an outstanding educational opportunity for, for young women. But in the last few years, there's been a different energy about it uh, as an outsider. And having visited your school uh, and encountered uh, many of the young women and spoken to them about their, their experience there, there's a real hope and optimism about what it is that's being crafted at St. Catherine's that is, that is a strong empowerment piece, a piece where the educators at St. Catherine's and the leadership team are deeply committed to equipping, empowering and enabling young women to understand their inherent possibility on a scale that perhaps allows them to lean into their own kind of self-determined learning uh, uh, while, while still, of course, being deeply committed to the fundamentals of literacy and numeracy and building the, their cognitive you know, capacities in, in that regard. Recently, St. Catharines has been nominated uh, for an Australian Education Award around the innovation in the kind of learning environment design and best school uh, strategic plan. Uh, so there's, there's two parts to my question there. What does this vision for St. Catharines look like? And how have you gone about implementing change in the senior school learning program? Look, I think the vision has come about through really just a team of senior leaders that are really, you know, when you've been in the job for a couple of years, you really start to understand your community and what the needs are of your community. And I think the longer you are in a school, the, the deeper that understanding is of, of, of the community that you're working in. And you start to be able to craft a framework which is really uh, appropriate for that environment. And I think some of the strength comes from that deep knowledge of the school, of the parents and of the staff that you're working with and, and who are your emerging leaders, you know, in that staff. And um, over the last couple of years, I've had the benefit of a, a relatively young teacher, Christy Forrest, who works very closely with Melbourne University. And uh, I, I um, offered her an opportunity to be a pedagogical coach in the school. And uh, for those of you that uh, um, follow Christy on LinkedIn, you know, she has just the most deep understanding of classroom practice. And I think the shift for us has really been on the back of, you know, letting Christy step forward in her career. And uh, also, you know, recently the work of Rob Marshall and this year, Seri Lloyd. So it's really about, you know, ensuring that I'm bringing uh, leadership strengths through to my staff as well. So those two people have also been instrumental in developing the learning framework at St Catharines, particularly over the last couple of years as well. So, and their work is, has been really exciting. I know Phil's done some work with Siri more recently and, you know, this ability to sort of recognise the importance of cognitive, social and emotional skills and that connection between well-being and academics and, you know, and how we're now combining that in our new strategic plan now towards 2025 is really exciting. And I think, you know, we always knew that, um, you know, well-being was intrinsically linked to learning. And, and I think, you know, it was just highlighted even more during the last two years as well. And I think that, um, you know, we know that students learn best, you know, when their well-being is at an optimum. And, and so our new strategic plan has been very much connecting those two areas of the school, which I think it ran quite separately more recently. And, and I think that we're quite excited about what that's offering the girls um, 
and so that vision for us is is now really about how do we go about doing that and so we've you know identified some key character dispositions in this new strategy you know we want the girls to be bold and courageous we want the girls to be independent with their thinking we want them to be resilient and also creative and curious learners. And so, you know, how do we set about our teaching and learning in our classroom practice to enable those dispositions to occur? So it's been a really exciting strategy to work with over the last two months. We uh, we wrote this strategy during COVID. Um, so we sort of had the benefit of what the girls were experiencing and what our teachers were experiencing as well. So it's very much COVID influenced, which I think is allowing us to step forward post COVID um, in a really positive way as well. I think there's something to be said about uh, a school that goes through a moment of crisis, like lots of schools have done across the globe in, the, in these last couple of years, but it's, it's been exceptionally pronounced with Victorian schools because of the, the sustained uh, lockdown that we had both in 2020 and 2021 for, for um, such consecutive, uh, so many consecutive days. But there's something to be said about a school that has a capacity to stop and pause and say, okay, what have we learned from this experience? Mm-hmm. And how do we continue to engage our young people in understanding what they are experiencing? And then as a result of that, a new strategic plan is recognising the interdependence between wellness and learning and that it's no longer an either or. It's no longer something that should be considered on the periphery. I'm talking about well-being in this context, that it is central to really, really effective learning to go on Mm. uh, in, in your school environment. When you, when you present to uh, a staff and a, and a broader community, the parent community, a new vision, how do you go about then articulating that to them, not just about the vision itself, but the plan that's been set out to implement yeah. it? So what I've done recently and what I'm about to do next Monday. Um, so we, during, during the COVID experience, we, like many schools in Melbourne, um, did a lot of surveying of the girls. You know, one of the things I love to do during the school day is... Um, go and stand in the line at the cafe and, uh, you know, just at lunchtime. And, you know, it's my opportunity. It's my 10 minutes of just standing and talking to girls. During COVID, I really missed hearing from them. You know, it's a great way to sort of get a sense of, you know, what's happening on the ground. And so every Friday uh, we were just giving the girls four questions during the lockdown period. And and what emerged from that was um, a real enjoyment that the girls were contributing to how the school was navigating their way through COVID. And what we really started to understand in um, in a much deeper way was they enjoyed the opportunity to have to be heard and to have their voice listened to. They were often coming to us with really simple suggestions about lesson length or break between, you know, lessons, you know, during the the online day and then us acting on that sort of feedback. So they love giving us feedback, the good, the bad and the ugly, and we were able to then respond from that. Some of the uh, trends that emerged from that feedback that was that uh, learning online was not all bad. You know, many of the girls actually enjoyed the flexibility of time, the increase in time, they weren't travelling to school um, and they enjoyed the agency, that control over their time. So some of the trends that emerged from their feedback, we then took and started to really um, map out how that could be part of our learning, um, you know, framework as we sort of stepped forward. So, you know, we trialled and ran a pilot program with our Year 10 and 11 students of um, an independent learning tutorial. So, you know, once a fortnight, instead of being in class with their teachers, the girls had an ILT, 
And it was really about giving them some time in every subject to choose what they did. They could book a time with their teacher in the library. Um, they could uh, choose to use that time to listen to a masterclass that this teacher had developed, or they could choose to go and have a music lesson and listen to their masterclass after school and sort of, you know, just sort of handing over some time back to the girls where they could then choose what they wanted to do. It was a great, gave them a great sense of agency, a great sense of, you know, I'm in control of what I'm doing and I'm in control of what of my time. But that emerged from the feedback that we received from the girls during COVID. So, you know, in presenting to staff and in presenting to parents, I was able to sort of take them on the journey of, you know, what are the trends in the feedback that they gave us and how have we taken that information and really started to change things up. And of course, during the first 12 months of implementing that pilot program, we were continually feed, you know, receiving feedback from the girls as well. And, um, you know, just to receive, you know, a masterclass once a fortnight for each subject, you know, the feedback was, you know, in maths in particular, they were able to, um, you know, listen to that masterclass two or three times. They were able to speed up the teacher if they you know were grasping it you know so there's that sense of control this can take me 45 minutes or if I you know speed them up it could take me 20 minutes or I can stop start and listen to it and do a bit of work in between so once again that controlling of their time directly uh, reflected the feedback that they'd given us during COVID so it's been a really interesting journey and the girls now are really enjoying that experience as well. You know there's something to be said about uh school leadership that is prepared to continually create feedback and reflective loops, not only for the adults that are in that community, but as you've just beautifully illustrated, in your case, the young women of St. Catharines. And it's one thing setting up a structure to receive the feedback. It's another thing then to do something constructive with it going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, and and what, what you're sharing with our listeners is already uh, a model of a way in which to, to not only have a deep tuning in and listening to the young women or the young men in some contexts in some schools uh, of, of what's going on, but what, then we, what do we then do with it? Because it would be then very hollow if it was just this kind of lip service of listening, mm -hmm. warts and all. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's very easy then to get offended by some of the things they say or, or energised by some of the things they say, but that hasn't been your case. The case at St. Catharines has been that you have embraced their feedback as an important data set. And it's not just about NAPLAN or ATAR results. It's an important data set, a human data set. When you have that information, you've given us an example of already about some things that are shifting and evolving at St. Catharines in support of these young women to step into their own agency. How else does St. Catharines amplify voice, agency and leadership? And most importantly, advocacy. Uh, within the young women in in your community to go not just not just within the community itself but go beyond into the broader context of the community one of the uh, projects that we're running this year is one I'm sort of most excited about actually and uh, it's our year nine humanities program and uh, in 2019 pre-covid I had this uh, and feels aware of this story I had this one day at Eton College uh, in the UK and it was quite unusual for me to actually pursue a boys school to go and visit normally I would be sort of you know looking at girls schools and I spent a day with Johnny Noakes over there um, and uh, he showed me uh, the Harkness methodology that they're using over at Eton 
And it very much is about voice and agency and very much, you know, changing the classroom structure, the classroom furniture and the design of the classroom lesson. And as soon as I watched this, I said, this could work with St Catherine's girls, you know, and I came back after the crazy sort of five days, five schools in five days in the UK, and I said to my head of humanities, I think this will work um, at St Catherine's. And, of course, then COVID hit. So we'd sort of put it on pause. But, you know, this year we've very much uh, changed up what our Year 9 Humanities program looks like. And we set out to, to uh, purchase two large Harkness tables, which are oval-shaped tables, so the girls are not sitting at desks and chairs or in rows or anything like that. They're sitting at a large board table. So the girls uh, come in, you know, they immediately responded with a change of furniture, which they loved. And that sounds, sounds so simple, doesn't it? But it actually does change the way they behave in the lesson. And, uh, of course, the uh, Year 9 Humanities teachers also set out to rewrite the humanities curriculum. And uh, the way the girls participate in that lesson is very much um, a Socratic style, I guess, of learning. But, you know, they had to learn how to sit at a board table and to participate in a conversation. So, you know, no student just responds independently. They need to pick up on the last, um, you know, comment that someone made and then build on that experience or rebut that experience. So they needed to really, you know, participate in a very different way. They needed to go and conduct their own research externally and come together for their Harkness lessons. And so, you know, I've been really um, excited to see how that emerged in Term 1. Um, I'm about to survey the Year 9 girls to sort of give me a bit of feedback after six months. But, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting how you can just see something in, in one school in another country and think this will work for the context of St Catharines. And so my plan is that every student prior to going into VCE will go through this sort of Year 9 Harkness program um, a little bit like you know like a funnel almost and it's about finding your voice in the classroom it's about preparing for a classroom very differently and participating in a board table discussion as well and I'm really excited about what we're seeing in that program and what they can then step forward into their VCE years with as well um, so you know this is one example where you make small change in one in one subject area but I'm hoping that that change will be quite obvious as the girls move into their VCE subjects in years 10 11 and 12 also Michelle, it's, it's uh, lovely hearing you talk with Adriano and about the journey that the school's been on. One of the things that we note about schools is that every school has got its handful of teachers who are out there doing their thing and pushing the barrow forward. But that in the long run, those individual efforts really struggle to make an impact on dragging the whole school culture in that way. In other words, teaching and learning is a team sport. How do you help your teachers to understand that we all do this together? Yeah. Uh, last year I was awarded a uh, Menzies Fellowship um, mm -hmm. and so I've been sort of working on building collective efficacy in the school and that's very much aligned with the, the Menzies Fellowship that I, work that I've been doing in, in that area. And uh, part of that um, project has been establishing uh, professional learning teams in the senior school. And uh, so we have the staff um, in teams of six to eight and each with a coach. And, and the coach are very much my emerging leaders in the school that, um, you know, I've led them through a bit of a coaching the coaches program as well. But what's been really interesting about these professional learning teams is I was quite deliberate in how I established those teams. So I intentionally made them cross faculty. 
And, uh, you know, because I know that if I bring faculty groups together, they will continue talking about assessment design or they'll continue talking about curriculum. And part of the thinking agenda at St Catharines is I want them talking about uh, student learning. I want them talking about classroom practice, not about, you know, uh, a maths test as such. So designing these professional learning teams as cross-faculty has perhaps probably been the most significant change that we have made. And uh, interestingly, my head of um, English, you know, said to me at the end of last year, she said, look, I was a bit sceptical about the benefit of them being cross-faculty. Um, but she said what it did for me is it removed the content and it forced the conversation on student learning. And I think that's probably been pivotal in how we've been able to uh, take uh, what are your A-plus teachers, and every school has those, and able to share practice, you know, more broadly across faculties and more broadly across the senior school. So um, after being on a sabbatical in term two, I'm really interested to see how those professional learning teams, you know, are, um, are conducting themselves. Um, each teacher has an action research project that they are being guided by from their coaches. So it's not just a free for all. It's really, you know, set around those uh, dispositions of, you know, independence, resilience, creative and bold and how they are going about, you know, making that change in their classroom practice. So um, I'm really excited about the professional learning teams and, in, and also what underpins that is this emerging collective efficacy that is occurring right throughout the school. So it's not just about teachers collaborating, it's, you know, really understanding what collective efficacy is in a school environment. Oh, there's, a, there's a deeply considered process that's going on here in your leadership did this all just happen to you on one day? There you are walking along the beach of Bridget and you go, aha, all the plan is unfolding or, or was this more an iterative sort of approach? No, no, it didn't just dawn upon me walking on the beach, but that sounds really romantic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I did walk many kilometres between Perugian and Coulomb. Look, no, it's it's come about through conversations with, um, particularly with Christy Forrest, I think, with Sari Lloyd, even with Phil, and uh, you know. No, Josh surely was, not me. Surely yeah, not me. Yeah, you want to with, you uh, had good conversations with serious educators instead. Yeah, and and within with Johnny Noakes in in at Eton College as part of um, my work with the Menzies uh, Fellowship as well. So, you know what are, what's happening in other schools. Um, so I think, you know, you sort of develop um, these ideas, you run small pilot programs, you know, what works, throw out what doesn't, and then build on that. And so it has, you know, we sort of ran the PLTs in a small project uh, last year, starting when staff were in lockdown in term three. And what was interesting was through the craziness of teaching online, you know, once a fortnight to come together with colleagues to talk very professionally about what they were doing and how they were going about their teaching actually proved to almost be a breath of fresh air for teachers who were sort of, you know, you know, limping their way through term three lockdown last year. But there were just moments of really insightful conversations that were occurring. And we knew that the PLTs would then, you know, be something that we would step forward with once we sort of left that lockdown period. And I, and I believe that it's been instrumental in being able to uh, spread a teaching and learning practice um, across the school, probably more rapidly than what I would have done if we hadn't done the cross-faculty PLTs. I would regard that what's happening at your school is visionary in its nature, and yet the approach 
towards building that vision. It's a little bit like eating an elephant, isn't it? It's like which, how do you eat an elephant one bit at a time? Which bit do you eat? The bit that's in front of you. You know, it's not, it's, you know, you don't wake up one day and go, oh my goodness, here's a whole elephant. Let's all go and do this at once. Here's how we're going to put together the pieces. It's okay in your leadership to construct a vision for a school Mm -hmm. iteratively as you go. And Adriana has just passed me this uh, lovely note in the back chat that we have with each other uh, around uh, when we do these conversations with game changers, um, around the notion of understanding, building empathy, and then mapping a way forward, which is defining and then iterating and prototyping it with the students, in your case, the girls, and then testing it with them. It sounds like a whole design thinking cycle. How, how important is it to have, I guess, a picture of what you want in your head before you start something? Or is it more just a sort of a generalised intent? Uh, Look, I think the picture is about not necessarily what it looks like, but what you want to achieve. You know, so, you know, I wanted to share um, the great work of some of our teachers, you know, so how do I then go about doing that? So I think the picture was about you know, what does great teaching look like at St Catharines? Who are our great teachers and of which there are many? And how do we share their work and how do we share what they go about doing? So, you know, next Monday on our staff day, I've got four um, teachers stepping up and sort of really sharing what they're doing in the classroom. And I think it's really about highlighting that great success and that great work of teachers. So I think it's not necessarily about having the map um, developed in my head. It's more about uh, what I want the outcome to be. So start with the end in mind and then work your way forward from there. Um, I, can I just change tack for just a moment and talk about your own approach to leadership? Do you have a model of what you think your leadership might be? Uh, look, I think it changes all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think um, it has changed, you know, from when I first started. You know, your first few years as principal are... Uh, you know, can be very challenging because you're emerging with your own craft and and it's very visible and obvious to everyone as well. So I feel much more comfortable with um, myself as a leader than what I did nine years ago. There's no doubt about that. But, uh, you know, at the moment I... um, it's, it's more about how do I develop other leaders in the school and, and how do I sort of build confidence in their leadership. And I think the more that you do that, you know, the stronger the school will be. I think when you first start, you feel like you have to do it all yourself, you know, and, and that's certainly not the case, nor is it sustainable as well. So I think it's really about identifying leaders in your school. Um, we now have uh, a third group of staff that are um, participating in a leadership program. Uh, they, these are middle leaders in the school and people that I'm sort of tapping on the shoulder saying, I think you should, you know, participate in this program. So I use um, a, a wonderful um, a mentor, Rosie Rowe, who runs a leadership program for groups of about five or six um, staff members. And, and really, so my leadership now um, is very much about how do I build leadership capacity within the school and within our middle leaders and within our senior leaders. And, and it's been a really exciting project. It sort of tells staff that I think they're doing a great job and I think that they've got even more to build on as well. So I think it's nice. It's rewarding for colleagues to see other colleagues step up in their careers as well and that, you know, you don't need to always be going externally to bring in leaders to the school. You can bring develop them from within your own um, school environment and your own staff as well and and I've been really excited about that and I think it probably reflects the journey that I had as well you know I had people 
in my years as a teacher and my years as a middle leader that sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, have a go at this or step forward for this or what about applying for this? And it's been able, it's been nice to be in the position to be able to return that to some of the staff at St Catherine's. There's so much uh, richness in what you're sharing with our audience today and I really, really appreciate the way in which you continue to evolve your own leadership. But what's really telling is your preparedness to be open to the other. We've always seen stereotypes about leaders that are this kind of uh, autocratic uh, individual who's at, at the top of the hierarchy and everything goes through them and stops with them. Uh, but like you have said, building the capacity of a broader church of individuals with any kind of community ensures that uh, sustainability, uh, you know, going forward, it ensures a great empowerment piece of where people step into their own agency and uh, it yields such, such really positive results uh, and, and change accelerates in that way, doesn't it? At mm-hmm. the centre of that, I feel, is trust and, and how you cultivate trust within teams You've just spoken about how you've got these emerging teams occurring whose whose focus is on the craft of learning, how students learn best, not just the content. The reality is the content is in many ways imposed upon us if we're following the Australian curriculum or Victorian curriculum, whatever. I mean, the content's there, you know, so we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. What we should be doing is thinking about how we learn and how they learn. What are some of the traits that are present in the best teams that you've worked with? I think there needs to be healthy and robust ability to have conversation, you know, and being able to receive feedback needs to be then built on, not personalised, you know, and people can provide feedback without offering criticism. So I think there needs to be a healthy dialogue that underpins the best team. Well, what I've seen is a healthy dialogue that underpins the best teams. And I think, uh, you know, not taking things personally is probably what I observe, you know, in the, in, in the best teams as well. Uh, I think there needs to be uh, a willingness to, to grow and a willingness to do things differently and a willingness to, you know, a willingness that things can be better and, and that, that sort of there's almost that improvement cycle that needs to underpin the work that you're doing in teaching. And certainly uh, what's, you know, so apparent post-COVID is, you know, the world of work that, you know, our graduates are stepping into has changed so significantly that in schools we need to, you know, we need to respond to that. And so we just cannot be doing the same thing that we were doing 10 years ago, five years ago, you know, because the needs and the demands for our graduates in the next five years has changed so significantly. So I think schools need to be constantly looking at how they evolve. And so how that then reflects back in the best teams is that they need to have an improvement cycle. How can we do things better? How can we be continually meeting the needs of the and I think, uh, you know, there's that optimism for what our graduates can step onto and step forward to. But I think that sits with the level of uh, being able to participate in a robust conversation as well. Yeah, it's so significant. Dialogue is so significant, not only dialogue with uh, each other, but of course, with self. And I love how you've, you've illustrated that even the most effective teams need to also be in touch with the sign of the times and have a a real deep understanding of what is going on uh, in in the world around them to be able to respond accordingly. Uh, You know, you've described today, as Phil has illustrated, a a kind of real design thinking uh, cycle of the deep listening and understanding, which is an empathy piece, uh, stepping into a way in which to to map out a way forward and, and you're then defining what that then looks like through a well-articulated vision and a vocabulary that then 
transforms a school. And then there's iteration and testing and, and prototyping and so on, which is really exciting. Talking about dialogue in teams, there's been a lot of dialogue, uh, um, Michelle, over the last probably six months. Well, it's probably been a lot longer than six months, but it's been definitely ramped up prior to elections around the value of private versus public in the education sector. You even have it in your own household uh, and family uh, when you when you have a dialogue with with your siblings around yes. around that. This discourse is really interesting. Uh, it's a discourse that's mainly generated by media and column inches that continue to seem to dominate it. And we've also, and so I can park that for a second, the public versus private, but we also see this constant conversation around single-sex schools versus co-ed. Your career has mainly been in girls' education. Mm -hmm. Can you share with our audience what you see the inherent value of single-sex girls' education is in this new world environment? Thanks, Adriana. <laughs> um, look, I think, I think it's a really challenging space at the moment, but I know... I know deeply that our work with girls um, hasn't finished and we still do not have enough women in leadership roles, in politics, in engineering, sitting at the board table like our year nines are, mm -hmm. you know, in their classroom and what they're expecting and what they're preparing for. Uh, women are still underrepresented in so many areas of the top tier management roles in Australia and even globally. So we still have more work to do. And uh, I am always acutely interested in teachers who I recruit that come from co-ed schools mm -hmm. and come across to single-sex schools. And I always remember uh, one teacher who's, who's still with us now, and I met with her three weeks after starting at St Catharines, and the first thing she said was, wow, you know, the girls put their hand up in my class. Mm -hmm. The girls put their hand up. I'm actually, the girls actually answer my questions. And she had come from a co-ed environment where the boys just dominated the dialogue and dominated the conversation. And her first impression after two weeks of teaching was, oh, my goodness, the girls have got their hand up. And I went, of course they've got their hand up. <laughs> you know, If they didn't have their hand up, I'd see that as a whole problem. But for her, it was just such a point of comparison. And so I've never, I worked for two years in, in a co-ed school in Singapore. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yep, my career has been in, in the girls' school uh, sector. And, you know, what I see is engaged girls and uh, girls with a voice and girls that are empowered. And I'm not sure that can, that occurs at the same level in co-ed schools because I think they are still tailored to um, to, make, to men and to boys. And so then how do we prepare girls for those top-tier management roles, for sitting at the table of ASX boards, for going into politics if they are not even participating at that level in the co-ed classroom? Now, I am at risk of being shot down by many co-ed teachers there, but I, my point of comparison is quite light because I've had 30 years predominantly in girls' schools. Sure. But my conversations with teachers that have come from a co-ed environment to a girls' school environment has been stark with what they have told me. Michelle, one of the things that you've revealed in the conversation with us so far is your deep concern about preparing girls um, to thrive in their world and to move into a space where they'll be able to exhibit a full range of competencies. And, you know, we, 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 you've mentioned already the graduate outcomes that you, you're particularly looking for. You want you know, young women who are bold and creative, independent and resilient. 
What are the key competencies that you think are really important for girls in particular to thrive in their world? Yeah, look, I think we've done some work, Phil, in that area about understanding the learning competencies that we wish to develop in the classroom and then how do they then connect with character dispositions as well that we've identified in our strategic plan. Uh, Some of the areas that we're focusing on is building self-efficacy and self-reflection, so being able to review and evaluate and organising oneself to actually then make a change. Metacognition. So, you know, recognising process and and, and agency, recognising action and awareness and influence and uh, that ability to collaborate as well. So, you know, sitting at that Harkness table in year nine is really about collaboration as well. So uh, self-efficacy, reflection, metacognition, so recognising process and recognising your thinking and learning and agency, you know, taking responsibility and understanding your influence, but being aware of your actions as well. So they're probably the key ones that we're focused on at the moment and connecting each of those to um, the character dispositions of building independence, uh, courage and being bold, resilience, and then that creativeness and curiosity as well. So then, Michelle, one of the things that you've been emphasising at your school very much is the notion of taking this understanding of who you want the girls to become and using really good research to help embed these dispositions throughout your curriculum and co-curriculum particularly. Do do you want to share a little bit about the thinking about thinking, the cultures of thinking work that you've been doing with your school for some years now? Yeah, so we've partnered with um, the University of Queensland, so uh, Peter Ellison, uh, three years ago. So this has been a three-year journey for St Catharines. And, uh, you know, as I said before, you know, I wasn't quite sure how, what the roadmap was going to look like, but what I needed to do was to stop the conversation where girls in VCE were saying to their teachers, tell me what I need to learn and I will go and learn it. You know, just just tell me what I need to learn and I'll go and learn it. You know, this very content-driven revision, (laughs) you know, and this inability to sort of, you know, create um, some student thinking and learning which was much more independent. And so what we've been on this sort of thinking agenda, I guess, at St Catharines and guided by Peter Ellison at the University of Queensland, who's been fantastic. And, uh, you know, we've really sort of wanted to uh, shift our classroom practice from something which is about rote learning content and really developing uh, dispositions of, you know, problem solving, analysing, evaluating, and really sort of reshaping what the classroom practice looks like. And and part of that Year 9 Harkness program that I talked about is not about learning, you know, content in history or geography. It's really about unpacking a problem. Um, And so we've sort of shifted the discussion from curriculum content to student thinking and student learning. And that very much underpins the work in those professional learning teams as well. You know, we're not talking about maths content. We're talking about, you know, student thinking in maths and what are the thinking processes or the metacognition that the students need to do to achieve in maths as well. And I think many teachers could probably um, reflect on their own students where, you know, that student says, you know, tell me what I need to learn and I'll go and learn it. You know, it's that how I will just go and rote learn my way through VCE. Well, you can't do that now and that's certainly not going to work for you in a work environment or even at university as well. So that has been a three-year focus for us um, with Peter Ellerton and then it's really about a focus on student thinking, 
and student learning and and how do we then build those skills in our teaching staff as well and and that's very much the work of those professional learning teams and teachers you know trialing things and that action research approach where they you know are guided to change practice but then talk about that with their colleagues as well it's really interesting to hear how you and your team at St. Catharines are deeply committed to fostering these kind of real transferable skills in young women so that, so that when they eventually uh, leave the campus grounds at the, end of year, at the end of each day, but also once they leave as students, yeah. I know they're always welcome back, of course, you've got a strong collegiate, old collegiate kind of network and alumni, uh, but when they leave, they are equipped with the necessary tools to thrive in this, in this world, which is a world that's constantly you know, evolving mm-hmm. and, and changing. We've also had a privilege today, Field, to listen to a leader who, as I said a moment ago, who is so open to the possibility of the other, not only the young women in your care, which is um, so exciting to hear, by the way, uh, but it's it's about the adults, you know, the adults who are, who are the most significant resource within that school community uh, and continue to provide such um, support and guidance, you know, to, to the fostering of the young women. If you had... Um, 280 characters in a tweet, Michelle, how would you define leadership? <laughs> Look, I think um, leadership, <laughs> well, I think leadership as a principle is a, is a deeply personal journey, but one that is uh, a joy to share with your community. Yeah, thank you very much. So much of what you've shared with us has been your own personal journey uh, <laughs> uh, that's coming to the fore every day. But what's really clear, and I love that definition at the end, what's really clear, and I'm sure our listeners picked up on this, is that St. Catherine's has a leader who steps into the profoundness of joy. That's the kind of encounter that you want the young women to have on a daily basis, not only with with their learning, but with each other and the adults that continue to support them. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on Game Changers. Thank you very much for your candour and thank you very much for what you continue to do uh, in support of, uh, of learning with, with those young women at St Catharines and we wish you well going forward. Thanks, Adriano. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by our school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.